Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. For this episode, we go up to the Pacific Northwest, and we're joined by Sean Rehorn, the superintendent at Aldera Golf Club outside Seattle. Sean has a very powerful story to tell about how he lost his former boss and one of his mentors, Paul Colloran, to brain cancer a few years ago. Sean's going to describe what it was like working with Paul when Paul was very sick, and he's also going to describe how he help manage the crew through a very emotionally draining period. None of the stuff that Sean is talking about is easy to discuss, so we're very appreciative of the fact that he was able to open up to us. We know that you're going to benefit from hearing his story, and we know that if you have a sick coworker, you're going to pick up some tips from Sean about how to deal with a very, very challenging situation. Well, Sean, we finally got you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. The first thing I got to ask you is, I think a lot of the people listening to this maybe have never been to the Pacific Northwest. Kind of describe your region and what golf is like in your part of the country. Uh, big tall trees is definitely a thing we have. You know, big dug firs and cedars. Uh, probably don't see them to any other places in the world as tall as we have them. Golf's a year-round sport. I get asked that a lot when I'm in places. People, oh, do you play golf there in the winter? Is a golf course open? Yeah, we play golf. If it's frozen and cold like it was today, it was 15 here this morning. We're kind of going through a cold stretch right now. But as long as, you know, we're above freezing and it's playable, people will play year-round. Uh, we have a group of guys at the club I'm at, Aldera Golf Club in Sammamish, that it doesn't matter what it does, they're going to tee it up and they're going to play golf, and they just love to be here. And I would say that's probably how golf goes in the Northwest. People just want to play golf. Wide array of golf courses that cover a lot of different economic standards, if you will, and People just want to play golf. That's how I got into it. Grew up at a public course, 27-hole place. Uh, my brother and I just kind of picked up golf. Our parents didn't play golf and uh, been in it ever since. You mentioned big, tall trees. Is that the biggest challenge you face agronomically, or is it something else? For me, it's not. The golf course is located on the old Boeing family farm, so a lot of it used to be farmed, um, also silage fields and hay fields. And so the golf course is pretty open. Uh, we've done a pretty good job, as I probably share on Twitter, uh, removing trees where needed and trying to open up a lot of sight lines. Every hole on the golf course is its own individual entity, so no two holes touch each other. And so we're trying to create these long channel views in conjunction with um, the golf course was designed by Tom Fazio, and that's kind of what he wants to see from it too, is these these long vistas are, are viewed and open and seen. Our biggest challenge agronomically in the Northwest is long periods of wet. We only average about 40 to 42 inches of rain, so it's far less than some people average in other areas of the country, except for to us, for us to get an inch of rain in a day is a lot. Uh, we kind of get, we had 10 inches of rain in January this year, and that can rain like every day. And then once you kind of get to July, Mother Nature turns the faucet off, and our days are super long. Um, you know, we have almost nearly 16 hours of daylight in the summertime. That's a challenge, too. Uh, the last couple summers I've faced, you know, you're high on plant growth regulators, and the, the, the plant is just kind of out of balance uh, a little bit with that much sunlight and uh, limited darkness. So those are probably our two things. We go from super wet and damp to just shut the faucet off and we're dry. Last year I think we went 96 or 95 days without rain. You mentioned 16-hour days. You're a private club with a limited membership, but on some of the other courses in the area, how much golf can be played in those 16 hours? You can almost do a triple shotgun. I, myself, the most I've played golf in a day, uh, a few years back with some friends, we played 54 holes on three different golf courses in one day. And it really wasn't a challenge to get it done. 
we played the last couple holes in a little bit of twilight, but it was definitely you could see it. You just didn't know where it landed. So, you know, it's easy to get in 54 holes uh, in a day in the middle of summer from about June 15th to July 15th. Walking, if you could do it, 54 holes is no challenge. I had the joy of visiting you and seeing the golf course a few years ago. Tell our listeners a little bit about the property you manage. You mentioned some of it earlier, but it, it's Tom Fazio's first course in the Northwest, and it's really a, a special piece of land. Yeah, it's uh, the property was homesteaded back in the 1880s by a guy named J.F. Duthie. Uh, he built boats, big giant ships, I guess is probably a better word for it. Uh, and then he sold the property to the Boeing family in the late 30, 30s, early 40s. We're about 26 miles from downtown Seattle. Uh, as the crow flies, so, you know, in 1930 or 1940, 26 miles is a long ways. Uh, as the, and they, they had it as a farm until, like, 1997. Bill Boeing Sr. wanted to sell the property uh, just because the family was kind of becoming less interested in it as people got older, and urban sprawl came further to the east. Um, and, but he wanted to maintain it as a green space. A group of members got together from other courses in the area, purchased the land, and built a golf course. Um, there's actually records that there was a nine-hole facility back on the golf course, back on the property, uh, like in 1915, 1920, somewhere in there, before the Boeing family bought it. There was just like a nine-hole roughed-out golf course. So maybe it was fate that it would go back to a golf course um, at some time. My maintenance facility is an actual barn with a red roof. It looks like a barn you'd see on the side of a road. I have seven of those, a couple silos, and then we just have a quaint little clubhouse that is a couple of locker rooms, a dining room, a pro shop, and that's it. All we do here is play golf. We don't have, I don't have tennis courts, a swimming pool. Uh, it's individual membership, which is also unique. So you're a member. Your wife is not a member. She can play golf with you. the The wife can be a member, and the husband cannot. They're just all individual membership, and so it makes us really unique. Uh, but it also makes it very nice because everyone is the same. There's we don't have different classifications of membership. Everyone's just the same. Yeah, your maintenance facility is one of the coolest ones I've ever seen. Kind of describe it, seven different buildings, like a barn. How do you store everything, and uh, how cool is it to come to that environment every day? Well, my office is actually an old bullpen. It's where they used to keep a bull. It's probably fitting that it's my office now. Well, and the rest of the barns, it's the only really heated barn we have. We have another half of a barn that's heated where we keep our sprayers for the wintertime. Uh, everything else is just dry storage, like upstairs. In a couple of the barns, they have like hay lofts and you know trap doors that kind of go through the uh, from the bottom floor to the top floor, so they could either lift hay bales or drop hay bales, or um, we use those areas to store drainage pipe and any other kind of random stuff we might have. Uh, storage is definitely not one of our limiting factors, as to seen other people have at golf courses. You know, limit storage can be a limiting factor. Everything that we own is parked inside. That's probably very rare also on a golf course too um but the one of the bigger challenges we have with our maintenance area is it's right in the middle of the entrance as you drive in and so we're always stressing that the area has to be clean and viewable and presentable uh one of our barns backs up right to the kind of the side of the ninth green so people will drive by it every day uh and so there's there's no excuse for us to have it be a mess seattle is a city that getting a lot of buzz in the 21st century. What is it like trying to operate a golf course in the shadows of Amazon and Microsoft and a bunch of other tech companies? How does that make it challenging for you to find bodies to work on a golf course at an affordable rate? Seattle city limits has $15 minimum wage now, so it makes it really hard. 
Uh, you know, a guy can go work somewhere for $15. I kind of have to match it. I'm only, like I said, about 26 miles away, uh, probably 40 minutes or 45 minutes in traffic. Um, the surrounding areas, the rent uh, has gone up tremendous in the last two years, especially, you know, Amazon, I read the other day, Amazon in 2012 had 5,000 people that worked in Seattle. They now have 40,000 people in five years. Amazon pays their people pretty well. Google is here too. Microsoft, uh, my wife, Danica, she works for Microsoft. And Microsoft has always been a long-term investor in Seattle. And they just announced like a $3 billion project for their main campus. And so the money's coming in. Finding people to work is hard. It, uh, a lot of guys just getting creative with more part-time workers and retired people and trying to find different ways. Um, the challenge for me with retired people is I can't give away golf as a benefit, really. Um, the only day I can, as a benefit, is we allow employees to play golf on Mondays when we're closed after work. And so there's that benefit. So I also try to hit hard on the high school and college kids and try to use that as an avenue for the high school and college kids. Hopefully maybe they're going to get interested in growing grass themselves. And that's how I got into it. I worked on that. My first job at the age of 12 was carrying a golf bag, and that's how I got into turf management. I was really fortunate with a really good boss at the time uh, that showed me a lot of things and showed me the ropes, and we're still good friends today. And without him, I probably wouldn't be doing this. So I, I think I try to use that experience as well to help find people to fill, to fill seats in the shop in the morning and get the job done. You've had quite a, a route to becoming the superintendent where you're at. You're, you're from the Pacific Northwest, spent two years at Washington State, then went to Michigan State, then worked in New Jersey, then you came back home. Tell our listeners a little bit about your career journey and how valuable was it for you to see other parts of the country before coming home? Yeah, so my first boss, uh, I was fortunate, he was my first boss when I was 14. Uh, my brother was two years older and he was working on the maintenance crew as well, so I was able to catch a ride. Um, the guy that's in Idaho now, his name is Rick Mooney, really good friend of mine. Uh, probably a few listeners that might laugh that know Rick uh, as good as they get as a person. He's always been good to me. Uh, he went to Michigan State as well, and so that's why I kind of got I was going to go to Michigan State and get my degree because I knew staying in Washington wasn't going to be my thing. I wanted to go see other parts of the country uh, and learn other things because I felt in the end it would help me. And then I interned at Canoebrook in uh, Summit, New Jersey for Tom Ashfield. Uh, and then that was, my, that was my first job out of college. Tom offered me a job after college to come back, and I worked there for three years. And then Tom left to go take the job at Quaker Ridge. And uh, the job that I came back to Washington for as the assistant at Aldera came open at the same time. All these things were kind of lining up, and I was certain I wanted to move home. I just didn't know when. And I was like, okay, this is the stars aligning and telling me that this is what you're supposed to do. And so I applied for the job, uh, and I took a job under a gentleman named Paul Colloran that I had worked for also in college as an intern. And I came back to Aldera in February of 2007. So I went from West Coast to East Coast back to the West Coast. And you got to work under Paul for seven years. And what was that experience like? And obviously, it's a very emotional story, Sean. I interviewed for the job. Uh, Paul offered me the job. I came back and started work. I think my first day was like February 7th of 2007. Paul is probably, is, was... Everybody that works in golf in the Northwest had either worked for him or worked for somebody who had worked for him. Uh, that was his legacy. You know, he worked in California. He built Poppy Hills, uh, came back. He was from the Northwest originally, worked in California, came back, worked at Tacoma uh, Country and Golf Club for a while, and then he took over as the first superintendent when they decided to build Aldera in 1999. Um, and I came back in 2007. 
Um, I mean, I could list 20 names of people that I know that have worked for Paul. I still run into people at the GIS that see the name of the golf course that I know where I work, might not know exactly who I am, and say, hey, did you work for Paul? And, yeah, and the story kind of keeps going. Somebody told me once in this story, this this will mean more after I tell the story and we talk about the story more. You judge a man by how many people go to his funeral, and it's, that's a really telling thing of about Paul. Like It's like that was something that I, somebody told me during this whole process. For our listeners that don't know, Paul, Paul died of brain cancer in October of 2014. Sean, what was that period like? He was sick for a year. You obviously had to step up your responsibilities. What was that like having such a respected boss go through such a serious illness? It was a Friday. It was October 18th of 2013. Uh, it was a Friday. We actually had a member event that weekend we call the Reeser Cup uh, that's named in honor of a gentleman named Mike Reeser who died of a heart attack. He uh, was a teaching pro here for a while and a golf junkie. I think he holds the record for the highest score ever on the PGA Tour. Um, I think he shot like 130-something back then. If you WD'd from a tour event, you couldn't play the next week. So Mike was injured, and he decides to keep playing because he's injured because he wants to play next week. So we have this event called the Reeser Cup, and we play 54 holes over the weekend. And Paul had played in it from the beginning, uh, the first year after Mike had passed. And then I came on board, and they needed a sub one year, and Paul told the guys at the club, hey, I got a guy that can play, and so I played. And then every year I've been, I've play, I've been fortunate to play in the event, and it's a great event. Uh, it's all gross, just pure golf. And that, you know, Paul was a golfer as well, and our bond together was probably in golf. We were competitive about it, but we enjoyed it, uh, enjoyed the architecture. And so, anyway, it's a Friday, and Paul comes to work, and things hadn't been going very well. There's been had some things, and uh, the mechanic and I, Dino, and, you know, had, we're, we're certain something wasn't right, but it wasn't our place to say. We didn't know, and it was, you know, it was, Paul was a tough guy and came to work every day and didn't really want to say very much, so we didn't get in the way either. We just did our job, and he came to work on Friday morning, and I came in his office, he had the lights off, and his and he just said, I don't feel very good. I'm going to go home. I said, okay, I'll take care of it. I'll get things going. And I kind of, we talked about work for 30 seconds, and he got up and went home. Uh, Saturday morning, his wife, Joan, who was amazing, um, came in and told me what was going on, that Paul had brain cancer, and he was going to have surgery on Tuesday. And so we played golf on Saturday, and it was probably uh, the best thing to do because I was around 24 guys that knew Paul, and, um, you know, we could kind of laugh and cry and, do all those things and and then we played golf on Sunday and Paul had surgery late Monday or early Tuesday uh, I saw him on Tuesday morning and uh, I was living with my girlfriend who's my wife now at the time and I went home and I cried for like an hour and I, I mean it's it's weird to even say it like in a in something like this but I I'm definitely not ashamed of it you know it's just so it's still emotional you can probably tell in my voice to talk about it um, and I went home and cried, and I just told myself that night laying in bed that I, whatever it took, I would do the right thing. And that was my focus for a year uh, until Paul passed, was that every day I came to work, uh, it was outside of the scope of my job for sure, but I didn't ever want somebody to say I didn't do it right. How much was Paul around that year? I mean, you, you have a boss that's going through a serious illness, but he's still your boss. Was he around a lot that year, and how did you manage the staff, I'm guessing you had a lot of people that had worked with him for a long time working for you guys. Yeah, Paul was a Paul was a workaholic. You know, he loved his job and he loved what he did and he loved all there. He built it. 
it was um, Joan used to call it his mistress. You know, he would come, always want to come to the golf course after he came home from vacation. Always wanted to come down on a Saturday morning and take his uh, his dog Sage for a, a run when I was working a weekend or whatever. You know, we'd talk for 15 or 20 minutes, and he would go home, and or he'd come in for longer and help me finish or help one of the other assistants. And he was here every day. I think for him, it was about trying to find as much normalcy uh, and common ground as he could. And I stepped in when I needed to, but I also knew that I wasn't the boss and it was his show. But I did what I could to make sure that whatever he thought needed to be done, we, we did. And that's, it was a tough, toward the last couple of months, it was brutal because uh, he was really struggling with some, with some health issues and um, some memory issues. And, you know, I was trying not to get caught in the middle. And, and, and also the thing that I wanted to pride myself on the, mo- the most and, is that we weren't going to let the product diminish just because he wasn't uh, getting better or doing better uh, because if he did get better, he, we'd want him to walk in and, and say, hey, you guys did a good job in my absence. Uh, and, that, and, and I focused on those couple things in the process, and I don't know if it helped, but it definitely gave, my, gave me focus. You're still very young, and you were very young at the, at the time. What were some tactics you used to gain the respect of the staff through this turbulent period? Uh, I tried to be really honest with them about what was going on. Uh, I also tried to just be myself. Uh, I didn't try to allow that stuff to change me. You know, I, like I said, I tried to just do the right thing. That was something I probably said to myself every day on the way to work and the way f- home from work. Um, and then, you know, I just tried to face it head on. You know, Dean, when he was here, and, uh, you know, we would kind of laugh about some of the stuff because Paul would come in and, you know, he'd want to drive around the golf course and, and he would do stuff. And you just try to laugh about those moments, too. Um, you know, it probably sounds weird to some people who don't know the situation, but everyone that was here, I think, understands what I mean there. And we just tried to go on like he was going to get better. And unfortunately, he didn't. And things took a turn for the worse, and they went, and it took a turn for a worse fast. And, uh, you know, but really, it was just trying to be, trying not to let the product diminish, trying to focus on work, um, but also understanding, you know, that. I think the thing that's probably changing me the most is, you know, I'm definitely a work-driven individual, and um, and I probably need to do a better job, and as with everybody, balancing work and home. Uh, but when guys on my crew need time off because they got stuff to deal with their family, then hey, it's time. Yes, go deal with it and take care of it, and we'll 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 pick up whatever little hole or void is there in your in your time gone because someone else might need it on the same side. I think I saw a photo of you, Paul, and Dean together on Paul's last visit to the course shortly before he died. W- what do you remember about that day, and did you know that that was going to be the last time he was there? Uh, September 30th, uh, 2014, uh, Paul passed away October 8th of 2014. So it was a week before, eight days before. Um, and he came He came with his wife, Joan. She, the last couple months that he was uh, here at work, she brought him to work, and she would drive around with him, and she was kind of part of the crew too. And it was a different dynamic for sure. But uh, Joan is uh, Joan is amazing, and she we still talk from time to time. And uh, you know, she was trying to do right by Paul and give him everything he needed to get better. Um, but September 30th, 2014, was his last day here. We were doing a project on the driving range, and 
uh, Paul had started, we were putting in some mats and we were doing some brickwork or masonry work around it and getting things dialed in. And uh, Dean and I had kind of taken the project over and I had taken one side of it over and he was doing some of the masonry stuff and cutting stone and other things and some of the guys on the crew. And uh, Paul showed up because he wanted to see how it looked. And uh, we had some laughs on the driving range and we had a good time and talked and he and then yeah that was his last day here and then uh the next day i saw the next time i saw him was a couple of days before he's passed i went to his house and saw him and said some stuff to him privately and uh yeah and that's how that went i some of it it's weird i i i remember a lot but i also feel like i blocked some of it out too what were the first days weeks and months like after his death well the first thing i remember was being at um his funeral uh we were at his we were at his memorial service funeral and uh all the guys on the crew a couple days leading up to it had said hey we would like to go and i said well of course like you know i'm not going to tell you you can't go because you got to go to work and so we came to work in the morning we got the golf course ready and uh and then everybody had brought their clothes with them and some people brought their wives and like my she was my girlfriend at the time wife now she went with me and um, there's a bunch of members there. There's a lot of people there. And this is where that thing, you know, how many you measure somebody by how many people go to their funeral. Uh, there's so many people there and so many people passing on kind words. But I remember, like, sitting in this room with all of these people, and I'm like, is this real? Like, is this really Is this, is this really, is this really happening? Am I in a dream? Uh, is tomorrow, is he going to show up to work and he's going to say, hi, gotcha? I, I don't know. That was uh, in the days afterwards. I just tried to focus on the guys and make sure that they felt like the office door was open. You know, I didn't go in Paul's office. It wasn't my, it was now, it's the office I use now, but it was not my office. I didn't go in there. It was not my place. And I tried to make sure the guys knew that the office on the door on the office I was in at the time was open. And if they needed to come and cry and talk about it, then, hey, that was okay. Because we all went through something and that is unique and traumatic and if we just kind of wrote it off we weren't going to get better from it we weren't going to feel okay about it we were going to struggle and, and and it was okay too if people got upset you know guys would get upset about stuff and i just say hey, it's okay like it's fine you, you my dad told me a long time ago that you never judge somebody how they deal with death because we all deal with it our own way and so i tried to really rely on that a little bit too that that was a something i is how i treated people was that, that I couldn't judge them for how they were handling their stress or their remorse, their uh, trying to think of the word, their grief. You know, that was that was, they had to handle it their own way, and that was okay. You're very good at networking and reaching out to people in the industry. Was there anybody you could even go to that could relate to what you and your crew were going through during this period? I don't know if there was people that I could relate with. Um, I don't think I. I'm glad that I haven't found somebody who can relate to what I've gone through. Uh, not to make me, uh, I'm just glad that I haven't found somebody because I, it's, 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 I wouldn't wish it on somebody else and wouldn't want. Um, but I had enough good people uh, in my life, my family, my former bosses that reached out to me and uh, a couple guys in the area as well, a couple superintendents, you know, uh, three people specifically that reached out to me and, you know, I've told them, since this, that time that, hey, I really appreciated that, you know, hey, call me day or night, and if you need advice on something on the golf course, then uh, I, I'll, I'll be there and I'll help you. And, you know, I was lucky that 
it, it didn't get to that point, but there was times that I called guys and I just said, oh, this is really hard, and how do I do this? And they just said, hey, it's going to be okay, you know, and Rick Mooney, my former boss, he was he was big there for me at that time, and, um, you know, I can't give that guy enough credit for the way I am or uh, how much my career has shaped as well. Him and Paul, you know, like the two big mainstays of my career, I only have one of them left, and so uh, you fall back on what you got. A few months after Paul's death, you were named the, the head superintendent. What were your emotions like getting a prestigious job like that at such a fabulous club close to home? But in those circumstances, what was that like for you becoming the, the head superintendent and being the person in charge? So the process was that the club opened the job nationally and they interviewed people nationally. And uh, I was angry at first. The, I didn't understand why, uh, you know, hey, look, I was here in this all this time and why doesn't it just become mine? But no, on the other side of it, it was the right thing for the club to do, and I'm glad they did it that way because it also gave me uh, some validation as the choice, as the guy they chose to lead the golf course and lead the team and lead the biggest asset. I went through an interview process, and uh, I have a, a member who's a friend of mine, and I said, hey, i got this big interview coming up, and I, I, uh, I need some help. And so he said, okay, be at my house tomorrow at 6 o'clock or it was two days later, whatever it was, and I showed up and there was eight members sitting in the room and they uh, all had questions ready for me to go. And they said, okay, we're going to help you get this job and we're going to prepare you. And we went through about 30 questions and we did that twice. Uh, it was uh, mostly the same eight guys. There was a couple guys that switched out, but they found somebody to fill their seat. Uh, went through two mock interviews and uh, I knew the answer to every question that I was going to get asked and I was ready and I was prepared and I owe those eight guys a lot, ten guys a lot. Another piece of advice I got you know, I, I, I like quotes and I like advice and uh, don't try to fill those shoes, just be your own and you know, I knew that I couldn't fill Paul's shoes. Uh, I couldn't fill his personality, I couldn't fill his demeanor, his um, his reputation all those things, but I could just find my own and if as long as I worried about filling my own shoes, I'd be fine uh, and that's how I tried to handle the first three or four months I remember there was a couple times during the summer things were stressful and I would be the only person here after everyone left and I would often remind myself that this isn't as hard as what you just went through a year ago so don't make it so hard yeah it's been three years since you've gotten that job Sean what has it been like shaping your own management style and what are some things you do now that maybe you weren't comfortable doing when you first got the job man that's a tough question I think the thing that's probably changed the most is I um, or where I've grown the most is how, how you lead people. Like you, you really lead people at first by failure. You don't get it right. Um, you got to read people for their own for their own attitudes and their own identity. And you have a, a common theme that you want people to live by. But how you treat them as each an individual. You know, I'm a big Michigan State basketball fan. Obviously, um, you know, you look at a guy like Tom Izzo. I mean, he's so hard on his players. But why do they keep playing for him? because he must give them something that they respect or uh, need or want. And I think that's a way that you you, ha- you can ask a lot for people, but you have to be willing to give them a lot too, and that, I try to manage it that way. Um, you know, I'm not the probably the easiest guy to work for at times because most of my pressure, and I think where pressure comes from in general, is internal. And, you know, it's, it's a drive to get better. And so I've tried to kind of put that on the back seat a little bit and, and focus on what people need. Uh, and, and, and get more from them that way. Um, agronomically, I, you know, we have bent grass greens. We're the only golf course in the Northwest that's 17 years old that has bent grass. And uh, I just 
tried to focus on making the golf course firm and fast and focusing on bent grass and keeping things simple and uh, just producing a product. That was, you know, my agronomic plan has shifted a little bit and under my fourth season here uh, once this cold spell goes away. And uh, I've just tried to, I've just tried to keep it simple and not overthink it. And, you know, it's about playing golf and you got to play golf a lot and you got to see the golf course and uh, interact with people because they're members and they want to be heard. And you got to make sure that what you say is, or what they say is heard and understood and try to provide what the goal is. You know, our goal here is to provide a championship golf course and we try to do that every day. I would say that both of us, Sean, know a lot of assistant superintendents that are close to landing their first head superintendent job or have just become a head superintendent for the first time. What was it like for you making the key agronomic decisions, not having someone else there uh, above you? What is that period like when you're finally the person that, that has to make all the key decisions? You'll get up early. You'll stay awake late. You know those things will happen because there is a lot of pressure there, but don't discredit what you know. You know, you've obviously probably been in a situation before and as assistant as I was where you were part of the decision-making process. It just wasn't the final thing with you. And I think you just got to believe in what you're doing. And there's a lot of good resources, a lot of good people, and you use those too. You know, people you used to work for, people you're friends with, um, and guys on the sales side of thing that you just know you trust their opinion. I was fortunate to have a couple of those guys. And, you know, we talk about stuff. And, and, and But I think the biggest thing is you got to have a goal what you're trying to accomplish. And if you don't have a goal, uh, you're going to make a lot of indecision. If you have a goal, hey, and is this lined up with my goal, then it's easier to make a decision. You know, I just got done writing a story about uh, Scott Dodson, a superintendent in Buffalo who just had a kidney transplant, and the donor was Brian Kahn, the superintendent at a neighboring club. But when Scott was going through dialysis and he was really, really sick, Jim Fry at Park Country Club really had to step up and lead the team during some difficult times. You had to do that. When Paul was sick, you said that you hope nobody goes through what you had to go through, but it's inevitable that situations like this are going to arise. What would you tell somebody who is kind of thrusted into into a role like you were and some other people are when the boss gets sick? I think it's just being yourself. You're going to handle it how you handle it and, and other people, and, and, and you don't judge people for how they handle things. Uh, you know, I think there's so much to learn from difference of opinions or uh, thought that it's okay to it's okay to question it, but you, you but it's okay to think differently than you too, um, you know. And you got to find a time to laugh. Um, you know, there was a couple times when a couple things happened on the golf course, and you know, Paul and I would laugh about it, and and I don't think we were laughing at anybody's expense. It's just a, a way of releasing tension, a way of releasing stress, and just trying to think. God, I can't believe we just did that, or why would you? Why did you think that was a good idea? And you laugh about it instead of getting mad at it. And, uh, it's so easy when people make mistakes to get mad. But sometimes I think if you laugh and joke about it, that it, it's easier for them to understand. What do you think Paul is thinking when he looks down on the golf course today? I had a good conversation with a superintendent um, at the GIS about Paul and a guy that used to work for him. And if he listens to this podcast, he'll know who he is. And it was a conversation between the two of us and uh, that's private. But, you know, it we both agreed that there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about him. Uh, there's even times I do stuff on the golf course still. I'm like, I wonder if Paul would like this. Um, and then I kind of have to remind myself that I think he would because, you know, I think he'd be happy with the product we put forward, you know, that the golf, that the, the club in a whole is in a good financial situation. 
um, you know, the membership's full and we're, we're happy and people like the way things are going. I, I think Paul would be happy, but, but I, it's so hard because I've spent numerous hours like wondering that myself, but also knowing that getting to an answer there doesn't help me. But, uh, if I feel good about what we're doing, I think that he would be as well. So Aldera is approaching its 20th anniversary in a few years. What are some projects you have in mind or what are some things you want to do to the golf course here in the next few years? There's been a lot of things discussed and talked about. We know we've talked about we're, you know, be up on 20 years, a bunker renovation, uh, building some new tees. You know, golf ball has changed so much and golf has changed so much in 20 years, you know, making the golf course uh, relevant still. You know, Mr. Fazio was here. Uh, in the summer of 2016, and we spent a lot of time driving around the golf course and looking at stuff and how far the golf ball flew and where the the appropriate landing place was for a golf ball 20 years ago, so different than it is today. You know, and his biggest thing is trying to keep the golf course relevant. So if that's, a, you know, um, adding us some tees, moving some fairway bunkers, you know, tightening some landing zones, whatever it may be, we don't have really any huge projects. It's, it's, on the on the on the docket, ready to go in the file, but there's definitely a lot of things we've talked about. Uh, now it's just a matter of putting all that stuff together and making sure the golf course lasts, you know, 20 years after that. You know, and then after another 20 years, we're going for another 40, trying to just maintain the principle that we're here just to play golf. You're only in your mid-30s, but do you feel a lot older than you really are because of the things you've gone through? At times, um, I, I think I've always kind of been a deep thinker and uh, some. I like to question stuff and look at things, and some people might view it as argumentative, but it's me just trying to learn more. You know, there's a uh, I listen to a podcast called Finding Mastery with Michael Gervais. He works with the Seahawks, and uh, it's a quote that hangs above my desk that I look at every morning when I get here that says, how does what we know get in the way of what we don't know? And I think that's the common goal. We, we constantly, like, because we know something, we don't look at it differently. Uh, you know, I don't like the term we... We do it that way because we've always done it that way. We try to use the term, we do it that way because it works best for us. And, you know, the way we rake a bunker, the way we mow a green, we've built programs and said, hey, this is, we're doing it because it works best for us. So it might not work best for somebody else. And that's, I love social media. Uh, you know, I was, I could, I could tell you I got a couple times at GIS in San Antonio that, you know, you're Twitter famous and you're Spartan Grass. And it's flattering, sure, but we get so caught up and, these things that just because we do it different that other person's wrong and you know the challenges you know Sahali Sahali's 10 miles up the road not even 10 miles up the road and you know you put our golf course next to their golf course they don't even look like they're in the same state you know because Sahali's so tree-lined and so different and you know, Tom and Tom Huskin the superintendent up there his challenges are so much different than mine but we're not more than 10 miles apart from each other and, you know, it's not that just you work in Georgia or Florida or California, our challenges aren't the same, and we have to remember that. And so, you know, I think sometimes I feel like I'm a little bit older because some of those years have been tough, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't change out any of those days that Paul was here when things, uh, because I think it's made me a better person. Uh, it's made me appreciate things differently and challenge things differently. But I, like I said, I, I don't wish it upon anybody. It doesn't make me a better person, but it has made doesn't make me a better person, but it has made me a better person. Well, Sean, I know we discussed doing this for a while. I'm glad that we were able to get together and record this podcast today. Uh, I really appreciate you taking some time. I know 
the stuff we're discussing is not the easiest stuff to discuss. And also congratulations on everything you've accomplished at Aldera. I had the pleasure of touring the course with you a few years ago, and it really is one of the most incredible properties I've stepped foot on. So congrats to you and your team, and uh, hopefully we get to catch up again soon. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure, and uh, you know, it's kind of flattering to, that you asked me to do this. And I'm, whenever I get a chance to share this story and uh, hopefully help somebody, that's the that's the biggest thing. You know, that we we help each other because uh, that's where we grow the most is in helping each other.